Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Welcome to First Baptist Church as we continue this sermon series entitled A Whale Tale, Lessons from the Life of Jonah. So if you turn with me today to Jonah chapter 3, um, four chapters in Jonah, we're in chapter 3, we'll finish it up next week. Today we encounter in Jonah 3 the worst sermon ever. How's that for an inspiring introduction? You all got out of bed today to hear the worst sermon ever. Um, But as you're turning, and you'll see it'll be well worth your while, um, let's look briefly at a review of where we've been so far. Prophet Jonah was called by God to do a very hard thing. That very hard thing was to leave his home in Israel and travel to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and preach against it, to call him to repentance. And the task was especially daunting because the Assyrians were notorious for oppression and violence. They were just very, very wicked people. So here's the deal. In in going to Nineveh, Jonah would either fail in his mission, in which case he would most likely be killed, or even worse in Jonah's mind, as we're going to see, he might succeed. He might succeed in his preaching, and Israel's bitter enemy would experience God's love and mercy and saving grace. And as far as Jonah was concerned, this was definitely a lose-lose proposition. He would either die or he would be extremely disappointed in a positive outcome. So instead of going to Nineveh, he went down to Joppa. He booked a ship to Tarshish, which is to see on the map, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of where he was supposed to be going. Jonah was foolishly attempting to run from God. But here's the thing. Because God so loved Jonah... And as we're going to see today, he so loved the Ninevites. He appointed a storm, not just a natural storm, but a supernatural storm of such ferocity that it threatened to break up the ship upon which Jonah was a passenger. And the the, the storm was so great that these experienced sailors, they were freaking out and calling out to their own gods because they thought they were going to die. And recognizing that the storm was supernatural in nature, these these sailors, they they cast lots. It was their way in the pagan world. They cast lots to determine on whose account their lives were in peril. And sure enough, the lot fell on Jonah. And so reluctantly, they didn't want to do it, but they felt like they had to do it. The sailors reached the conclusion that their only hope of survival is to throw Jonah overboard. And wouldn't you know it, when they did, what happened to the sea? became calm as uh, Lake Cadillac this past week at times. Did you notice how just pure glass that was so much of this week? And so what was good news for the sailors, that they were saved and the storm had gone away, was not good news for Jonah because he sunk down, down, down into the depths of the Mediterranean Sea until it says in verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now that'd be bad, right? We talked about that last week. The, the, the stench, the claustrophobia, just the, ugh, just the gross nature of that. As horrible as it would be to be inside that fish, it was absolutely better than drowning. And Jonah knew that. He knew that this fish represented his salvation. 
God stepping in and intervening in a situation and providing a second chance. And so while in the belly of the beast, last week's text, Jonah 2, we found a psalm of thanksgiving that Jonah wrote in that circumstance based upon his memory of numerous other psalms and how we weave them together. Remember that quote, I I milk a lot of cows, but I churn my own butter. That's exactly what Jonah was doing as he wrote this psalm. And then after three days and three nights and the fish, Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land, which brings us today to Jonah chapter 3 and the worst sermon ever. All right, would you please stand with me as I read the text in Jonah chapter 3? It is only 10 verses long. Oh, but they are so beautiful, impactful. I mean, we just, we just sung this song, Waymaker, in the commons, and I tell you what, you see God the Waymaker here in the land of Assyria and the city of Nineveh. So it says in Jonah chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, this text has much to say to us today. Would you open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to your truth? And may you find us to not be mere hearers of the word, but to be doers. God, break through our hearts of stone and find them to be fertile, good soil that will bear much fruit. And so, God, I pray for your help today. Um, Help me to do justice to this text, and may it be an act of worship back to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This chapter breaks down really into five parts. Um, First of all, we have Jonah's recommissioning in verses 1 and 2, Jonah's obedience in verse 3, his message in verse 4, Nineveh's response, which was miraculous in verses 5 through 9, and then God's response and verse 10. So let's start with the first of those by examining Jonah's recommissioning in verses 1 through 2. So let's go back to verse 1 where it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And in your Bibles, would you please highlight, underline, circle that phrase the second time, because it is so important. It is so impactful because it reminds us again of the truth from the tempest that we had in week number one, chapter one, that we serve a God of second chances. We serve a God of second chances. It doesn't matter how many trips to Tarshish you have taken going in the opposite direction from where God commanded you to go, or if you're on the ship to Tarshish right now, God is at work to bring you home. He has not given up on you, and it's because he loves you so much 
that He will employ severe mercy. He will do whatever it takes to awaken you from your spiritual slumber, even if that means sending into your life a ferocious storm, just as He did with Jonah, to bring you to the end of yourself, to bring you to that place of desperation where He's all that you have, and you call out to Him and finally get back to the place where you belong. That's how much God loves you, and demonstrating once again that we serve a God of second chances. And so the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. What was that word? We read in verse 2, God said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, does that sound familiar? It should. Because Jonah's original commission in chapter 1 sounded like this. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. I think this is significant because it reminds us that God hasn't changed, has He? God's Word hasn't changed. God's commission hasn't changed. It remains to be seen, however, if Jonah has changed. And so God is not going to change. God's Word is not going to change. God is not going to change His command or His character, His Word to fit you. What is necessary is for you to change you in, in adapting yourself to God's Word. Amen. Now, in both of these verses, Nineveh is described as that great city. It's that great city. In fact, four times in these 56 verses in the book of Jonah, Nineveh is referred to as exactly that, that great city. So clearly, it's a point of emphasis in the book. Whenever something is repeated, it's there for a reason. It's there to tell us, you need to get this. Nineveh was that great city, which raises the question, well, Why? What was so great about Nineveh? And several things. You've probably been able to figure out some of these already. First of all, Nineveh was great in size. It was a big city. Geographically, um, the walls of the inner city measured almost eight miles, which in, in our day and age, it's like, well, that's not that big. But again, we're talking about the ancient world. While the surrounding district or the greater Nineveh metropolitan area had an area of about 60 miles in circumference. And so in this region, there lived 600,000 people. Again, for its time, that's a lot of people. It's a big city. It's great in size. It was also great in strength. It was great in strength. Now, I, I've said previously that Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. I'm going to backpedal from that just a little bit because as I keep studying, I keep seeming to find some conflicting information on that. It, it may be like here in the United States. Washington, D.C. is our capital, right? But what are some of the biggest, most influential cities? New York, Los Angeles. So it may be like that, where, and again, their structure of government was different anyway. So anyway, whether or not Nineveh was, strictly speaking, the capital, it was a city of great strength and strategic importance, representing the power of the Assyrian Empire at that time. And so Nineveh was great in strength, size. It was also great in sin. It was great in sin, notorious for its debauchery, its oppression, its violence. They were in every way what we call today a terrorist state, a terrorist state, inflicting all kinds of evil in the world. So, hey, no wonder Jonah is reluctant to go there, right? I wouldn't want to go there. Jonah's life in going there, and especially with his mission of telling them to repent, to change their ways, um, would put him in great, great danger. But there's one more way in which Nineveh was great, and perhaps this is the greatest of them all. Nineveh was great in the heart of God. Nineveh was great in the heart of God. He loved Nineveh. He loved the Ninevites, which is why he referred to it four times, I believe, in this book as that great city, 
that great city. You say, Chad, how could that be? I mean, they were wretched sinners. It was a sick society. How could that be great in the heart of God? Well, in the very words of Jesus, it is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I came to call not the upright, but sinners. Sinners like the Ninevites. Sinners like you and me. And so that is Jonah's recommissioning, his redo, his reset his opportunity to get back on track and obediently follow God's will for his life by going to Nineveh and preaching just as God commanded him to do in chapter 1. Next is Jonah's obedience. Aren't you glad for this? Verse 3. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. There it is again, three days journey and breath. And we want to say, yay, Jonah! He's finally going in the right direction. He's literally repented. He's changed direction from Tarshish to Nineveh. And notice the trajectory of Jonah in this verse. He arose. He arose. Why is that significant? Because before, this literary device that we have seen, a repeated theme that when Jonah was going in the wrong direction, he was continuously going down. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down into the inner part of the ship until finally he went down, down, down in the Mediterranean Sea to Sheol death's doorstep, which was truth from the tempest number three from week one, that the way to Tarshish is always down. Well, we finally here see some signs of hope with Jonah as he has changed his trajectory. He is obeying, and now he arises instead of going down. And maybe he's going to get this right after all. Maybe he's going to take this second chance and run with it. He has changed his life and trajectory, obeying God's command to go to Nineveh. Now, let's not underestimate the challenging nature of this journey. We might look at the map and say, oh, well, you go from Israel to Nineveh, no big deal. Uh, But that's a distance of at least 500 miles with no plane, train, or automobile. Instead, you'd be going by sandal or by camel. So even if Jonah was able to cover 20 miles a day, which would be fairly aggressive, I would think, That journey to Nineveh would take 25 exhausting days in the hot sun. And think about all the thoughts he's having probably as he's going those 20 days in the hot, 25 exhausting days in the hot sun. But he did it. He did the hard thing that God called him to do. Jonah obeyed. And so next we have Jonah's message and literally the worst sermon ever. Okay, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The end. Now, in a preaching class in seminary, had I preached a message like this, what kind of a grade do you think I would get? Not passing preaching class with a sermon of this nature. There's no, there's no introduction, and there's no illustrations, and there's, there's no um, invitation, or there's no conclusion. It's just literally eight words in English. Guess, guess what in Hebrew? It's five words. And this leaves me with all kinds of questions. Um, first question, was this all there was to the sermon? Is this it? Uh, maybe there was more that just wasn't recorded. Maybe this was just a summary statement of the sermon. But if there isn't more to it, you can see why I would call it the worst sermon ever. It's not very catchy, not very eloquent, if this was all there was to it. But, But secondly, the second question, what was the condition of Jonah's heart? If this is it, 
What was the condition of Jonah's heart in delivering this sermon? Did he intentionally use as few words as possible in an effort to limit the effectiveness of the message? Again, to kind of sabotage it. So he wouldn't truly succeed because, again, he's not really all that eager for these people to experience God's love, grace, and mercy. And if so, what we have here is a prophet who obeyed outwardly, but is still very rebellious inwardly. He went through the motions, fulfilling the letter of the command, but not the spirit of it. We don't know for sure, but I think as we continue on through chapter 3 and the next week, chapter 4, I think it's likely that what we have here is a prophet who obeyed outwardly, but was rebellious inwardly. What we do know right now is Jonah did go to Nineveh, so he gets high marks there, and he did speak God's word of impending judgment to them, and so there is that. We'll have to wait and see if his message had any impact. Now, there's an interesting word at the end of verse 4, and I think this is really, really significant, really important. So you with me? Listen carefully. Verse 4 again, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, overthrown. That comes from the Hebrew hapak, which literally means overturned, overturned. And what we may have here is a play on this Hebrew word whose meaning could go in two different directions. You see, it could refer to overturned as in destruction. Overturned as in destruction. For example, the term is used that way in Genesis 19.25 in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19.25, and he overthrew Hapak, those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. And of course, we know from the story what that means is it was utterly destroyed, overthrown, overturned. Now, in light of what we'll experience next week in Jonah 4, I believe that that certainly seems to be what Jonah's preferred usage of the word would be, that that's what Jonah understood Hapak to be in this message from the Lord. His actual desire was that Nineveh would be overturned as in destruction. However, hapak could also refer to overturned as in changed. Overturned as in changed. Exodus 7.15, the term was used um, this way in this passage. This was where Moses and Aaron appeared before Pharaoh. And remember, God gave to Moses this special sign to demonstrate to Pharaoh that if Moses threw down his staff, what would happen to it? It would hapak... It would be overturned or changed into a snake. Same term that was used with Sodom and Gomorrah, here referring to something different, a different usage of the term, changed as in transfer, or hapak, overturned as in transformation rather than destruction. So we'll have to see which of those intended verses or meanings actually comes to fruition. Because here's Nineveh's response. Nineveh's response in verses 5 through 9. How would this sick society respond to Jonah's five-word sermon about being overturned? What would they do with the worst sermon ever? We read in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Just like that. The people of Nineveh believed God. Now think about the magnitude of this The worst of the worst in that day, this wicked, oppressive, violent, terrorist state, they receive Jonah's short message, and they believe God. 
They believe God. It appears that they will be overthrown or overturned in terms of transformation rather than destruction if that is God's heart and God's will. Now, the the question arises, why was this short, five-word, terrible sermon so impactful? Why did they respond the way that they did? There are actually some interesting theories about this. First of all, is the theory that someone actually walking on the beach witnessed Jonah being vomited out of the fish. Now imagine that was you, walking on a beach, minding your own business, and you see a man being vomited up onto the seashore out of a fish. What would you do? You'd start telling people about it. You're not going to believe what I saw. And uh, we, we use that phrase, things going viral today on the, the internet. That would go viral, wouldn't it? I mean, one person would did, hey, did you hear what Joe saw? No. What? And then they, one person would tell another and tell another until finally this story circulates in Nineveh and here's the, here is this guy. And all of a sudden he would have this amazing credibility in what he had to say. So that one possibility, one theory about why this sermon, the worst ever, was so impactful. But then there was a second theory, um, which has to do with the fact that the Akkadian word for Nineveh literally means fish. And the Ninevites were known to worship the fish god. And their city was known as Fish Town. And, And now Jonah shows up being the fish guy with the greatest fish story ever, which would certainly have gotten the attention of Fish Town. So certainly as well as if there was that witness on the seashore, and then here's Jonah in Fish Town with his fish story, um, he certainly would have had quite the audience. And the last theory, which I find most interesting, is it is believed that the impact of three days and three nights within the belly of the beast would have had tremendous impact on Jonah's skin. You see those gastric juices of that fish would have actually bleached Jonah's skin, giving him this white appearance of a ghost, if you will. And so, interesting theories. At the end of the day, I don't believe the effectiveness of Jonah's message had anything to do with any of those. Jonah's pitiful sermon was impactful, not because of these theories, but because God was at work. God was behind these words. God had a purpose and a plan for the Ninevites. In the eyes and the heart of God, Nineveh was that great city, great to his heart. The results were up to God, not to Jonah, which is a great relief to me. It is God who performs miracles, and miraculous results are exactly what happened in Nineveh. Look at the second half of verse 5. The Ninevites, they called for a fast, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now notice their their repentance. It reminds me of the sailors on the ship. And it isn't interesting that wherever Jonah goes, and Jonah's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, and yet there's all these revivals that are breaking out. Whether it's on the ship or it's in Nineveh, um, God's word and God's mercy are at work whether Jonah's doing his thing or not. But here, like with the sailors, we have repentance that is not casual, but it is wholehearted. It is wholehearted repentance. Sincere, authentic. How do we know that? Because they demonstrated it in two important ways. First of all, they demonstrated it with fasting, with fasting, which means that they went without food. Why would they go without food? Because going without food is a demonstration before God of our weakness and our humility. 
Going without food and fasting is a demonstration of our weakness and humility before God and church. I want to preach to you this morning and preach to myself as much as we don't like it because we're a people that loves food. Fasting, as taught by Jesus in the New Testament, is to be a regular part of the normal Christian experience. We are to be people of fasting. Jesus said, when my people fast, not if they will, he said, when they fast. And I believe it is the missing weapon, the missing ingredient for so many of us in regard to spiritual warfare, in regard to prayer, in regard to intimacy in our relationships with God. We don't fast, and we miss tremendous, tremendous blessing and power because we don't fast. So I preach to myself this morning first as I preach to you. Second way the Ninevites demonstrated sincere repentance is by putting on sackcloth. Sackcloth, burlap-ish, rough material, very inexpensive, very cheap. Sackcloth was the attire of the poor. It was also the attire of sorrow and of mourning in the ancient world. When people gathered to mourn, they would put on sackcloth and they would cover themselves with ashes. And the Ninevites were so serious about their repentance, they were so cut to the heart because of their sin that they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, it said. The rich, the poor, they were all on common ground before God in their sin. And we read in verse 6, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is powerful. The leader of this wicked people is repenting. Oh, that our leaders in this nation would repent. Oh, that we would pray for them in their repentance. But oh, that we would lead the way by our repentance first. The leader of this terrorist state, he he demonstrates the posture of his heart by removing his kingly robe. You see, in the ancient world, when a king was conquered, that king's robe would be stripped from him as a symbol of surrender. And here's this king of Nineveh doing this not because he's being forced to. He does it voluntarily as a symbol of his surrender to the one true living God, which I think is such a powerful, powerful picture. I wonder, church, what does your surrender before God look like? Is there some teeth in your repentance? Is there some practical steps or expressions of your humility and your surrender before God? Or is it just empty talk? Well, watch what happens in verse 7. I love this, by the way. This is cool. Um, and he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is crazy. The repentance of Nineveh is so far-reaching that it even involves the cows, the herds, by the king's decree, even the flocks were to join in the fasting and putting on sackcloth. might have looked something like this. I love this picture. (laughs) Isn't that great? My dogs need some repentance, by the way. That would be important. 
The sin of Nineveh was deeply, deeply entrenched, and so their repentance would likewise have to go as deep. Like the sailors on the ship who put their faith in God and offered sacrifices. Again, there was this tangible, tangible obedience. The Ninevites put their faith into action through fasting and wearing sackcloth. And the words of the king in verse 9 are noteworthy. They're such, such humble words. And he, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. These are not the words of a man presuming upon God's grace and mercy as we so often do. God will forgive me. He won't mind if I cut a corner here, if I compromise there, if I go in this direction instead of this direction. He'll be okay with it. He's a forgiving God. He's merciful. Don't presume upon the grace and mercy of God. The king did not. These are instead the words of a man broken under the weight of conviction and crying out to God in desperation. And so it is to be with us and our repentance. And this leads to the last point, which is God's response in verse 10. God's response in verse 10. When God saw what they did. Now that, that's interesting to me. Our, our salvation is not by works, is it? We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. The book of James brings an important addendum to that, which says that faith without works is useless. And here, I think it's significant. When God saw what they did, why is that important? Because what they did demonstrated the condition of their hearts. Faith without works is dead. He saw how they turned from their evil way, not just lip service. When he saw that, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The Ninevites repented, and God relented. Remember Johnny Cochran? Kind of sounds like Johnny Cochran. The gloves don't fit. You must acquit. The Ninevites repented and God relented, demonstrating the truth of 2 Peter 3.9, which says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, even the wicked Ninevites, who were great in strength, Great in size and great in sin, but more importantly, we're great in the heart of God. And church, do you believe that the city of Cadillac is great in the heart of God? Amen. So that is Jonah chapter 3. Jonah's recommissioning, Jonah's obedience, Jonah's message, Nineveh's response, God's response. Let's finish up with application. Answering the question, how should we then live? I've got four quick points to give to you this morning. The first is this, don't waste your second chance. Don't waste your second chance. We see in the story, the pagan sailors had a second chance. Jonah got a second chance. The Ninevites got a second chance. But church, judgment day is quickly approaching when there will be no more chances. Judgment day is quickly approaching when there will be no more chances. And the fact of the matter is, we are one day closer. One minute closer. It's coming. It's coming. And so it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. You see, the Ninevites had an assigned period of 40 days of God's favor. 
40 days to get right with God, and if they did not, they would be overthrown in the way that Jonah preferred. But this 40 days was their time of favor. Church, right now is our time of favor with God. The opportunity that He gives to us with the second chance to be made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on, our cross, on the cross and our faith in Him alone as our Savior and as our Lord. God gives everyone opportunity to turn from our sin, to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and to walk with Him in obedience. Don't waste this day of His favor because it will come to an end. Now is the day of salvation. Don't waste your second chance. And that also refers not only to salvation, but for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, but you're still on a ship to Tarshish. You're heading in the wrong direction. God knows it. You know it. And you're wasting time. And you're wasting your life. Don't waste your second chance. Number two, don't just go through the motions like Jonah did. Don't just go through the motions. He, he obeyed outwardly, but he wasn't right inwardly. And I, I got to confess to you, church, that this is me way, way too much of the time. Any firstborns in here? Any rule followers in here? It's just kind of your default. It's like, yeah, there's a rule. I'm going to follow it. Even if I don't agree with it, I don't really want to, I'll do it, but with a rotten attitude. Um, So much of what I do in life, and sometimes even in ministry, I do out of obligation because my heart, and my heart isn't in it. I do it because it's the right thing to do, and so I'll do it, but my, my heart isn't there. And that is not right. That's like Jonah. I'm like the Pharisees that Jesus so often condemned in the New Testament, calling them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. Your behavior is really good, but boy, your heart's screwed up. God isn't just concerned with our outward behavior and cleaning us up to be good people. He wants us to be new creations on the inside. He wants our hearts transformed to be in line with who he is. And so King David so appropriately prayed in Psalm 51, and this should be our prayer today as well, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't just clean me up on the outside so I behave better, but change my heart. Make me right on the inside. May I be inwardly what I appear to be outwardly, which, by the way, is the very definition of integrity. And the good news is that God is in this business of transforming our hearts. That's what the Holy Spirit does, just as he did with the Ninevites. If he can do it for those Ninevites, he can do it for you. He can do it for me. And so I ask you this morning, are you going through the motions Are you on the inside what you project on the outside, or is there some lack of integrity from the outside to the inside? Next, number three, don't give up on the spiritually sick. Don't give up on the spiritually sick. Has there ever been a people more unlikely to come to faith than the Ninevites? I don't know that there is. The worst of the worst. Again, I can't overemphasize just how wicked these people were, and yet... Because of God's activity in their lives and their response to God's word, they repented. God saved them. Um, How do we know that that was authentic? Well, Jesus said so. Matthew 12, 41, Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said it was authentic. 
Perhaps the greatest spiritual awakening in the history of the world happened here with the worst of the worst. And I know in each one of our lives, we got people who seem like the worst of the worst. Like, man, they're, they're just too far gone. They're not interested. In fact, they're antagonistic toward the things of God. And I confess, I can be all too quick to write people off and say, yeah, you know what? They're just not going to come to faith. They're too deeply entrenched in their sin and in their rebellion. And yet, here's this marvelous example of Nineveh. The worst of the worst, repenting and being saved. And so I I pray that this is an encouragement to you. Some of you have family members and loved ones and friends, and it's so, you just think, man, it's just never going to happen. It can't happen. They're too far gone. Um, Just think of Nineveh. Think of Nineveh. And don't give up on the spiritually sick. And then finally, don't underestimate the power of the gospel. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel. You know, you can say what you want about Jonah's five-word sermon and the motive of his heart behind it, which I think was totally screwed up. At the end of the day, it was God's truth. It was God's word. And God's truth is powerful. And I believe, church, it is far more powerful than we give it credit. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The, the, the gospel, the full gospel, not when we cherry pick parts of it because we like those better than others. The full message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And contrary to popular belief, it does not need our help. Amen. It does not need our help to make it more palatable to our culture. It's like, you know, we, we don't want to call people sinners. We don't want people to feel condemned. They'll be offended if we do that. Let, let's just start with the love of God part. Let's, let's just talk about God's love. And yet we see here in Nineveh, Jonah didn't even get to the God's love part. And God used it. Tragically, it is when we try to help the gospel by softening the gospel and watering down the gospel that we actually do the opposite. We rob the gospel of its intended power. And so, church, we must proclaim the whole gospel and not worry about offending people because oh, they won't like it if we say that they're sinners or if there's judgment or if there's a hell. It's like they won't listen to that. The people at Nineveh listened. And I believe people in our world today will listen as well, not because we're so eloquent, but because God is powerful and the gospel is powerful. So, um, and the fact of the matter is, the good news of the gospel is incomplete without the bad news. So listen to this carefully. Let's talk about America. For a moment. America's got problems, right? Lots and lots of problems. Like Nineveh had lots and lots of problems. Church, the problems of America will not be solved by overthrowing slash overturning. There's that word hapak, the government. We invest so much energy and time thinking if we can just elect the right officials, America will change and be God's country if we can just get the right people into office. We try to overturn, overturn our nation through politics and through elections. In church, the example that we have here in Nineveh, that is not how it's done. Now, vote your conscience, vote right, vote as you, as you are led, as good citizens participate in the process. I'm not saying that. But if we put our hope in politicians to bring uh, salvation to America, our hope is misplaced. The problems of America will only be solved by overturning hapak hearts through the preaching and application of the gospel. 
It's not politics, politicians that are powerful. It is the gospel that is powerful. And if we only cared as much about evangelism as we do about politics, perhaps then we would see change in America the way there was change in Nineveh. Do we need it? Absolutely, we need it. Absolutely, we need it. So, don't waste your second chance. Don't just go through the motions. Don't give up on the spiritually sick. And I believe that means America. You know, I I am guilty of being a cynic, a pessimist, and just saying, you know what? It's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, Nineveh is quite, quite a challenge to my thinking in that way. If it can happen in Nineveh, it can happen here. And don't underestimate the power of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the book of Jonah. It pierces our hearts. God, it convicts us in so many ways. It convicts me. God, we thank you that Cadillac is a great city. It's a great city in your heart. God, the United States of America is a great nation in your heart. You love Cadillac. You love America. And I believe, God, you long to bring us to a point of repentance and salvation. It is because of that repentance that you relented. And so, God, may that revival start here. May it start with us. May it be contagious. And may we trust in you and the things above and the things of the kingdom more than we trust the things of earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.